Welcome. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabrielle. I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Yes. Well, not exactly, but beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theater. But we didn't just do theater. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects or what we called paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which really means we just like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry around and readjusted a new reality, their new status quo. Right. So in the last episode, we touched on the idea of how artists here in the U.S. constantly wrestle with obscurity on the one hand and with uh, fame and fortune and celebrity on the other. And with Nick's and my relationship to that, how we try to negotiate that as all artists do, I think, um, when neither fame or celebrity nor obscurity are desirable, right? I mean, I mentioned that what drew me to Nick, which I liked, you know, the idea of back then is that he said he didn't aspire to fame. He aspired to legend. Right, legend. Well, I mean, I don't know how different from fame or celebrity um, legend is, but the, the idea is to escape uh, from your name, to remain anonymous, uh, to create a rumor around what's Right. Whatever you're doing. Right. You know, so th they're bound to be somewhat similar, right? When yeah. the goal is to uh, disrupt and alter the status quo. I mean, if you're successful, you're going to get some attention, either as celebrity or as anonymous, anonymous legend or rumor. You're going to get attention, right? So there's a kind of, yes, anonymity in legend, Right? An opportunity to make a mark on the world without your ego being right up front and center. Um, for example, hey, look at that teepee. I wonder who built that and erected that versus, hey, look at me. And uh, here's my contact information. Right. So, of course, nothing is ever pure um, as far as our intentions go as artists. And... I guess it's that impurity and vanity that ultimately is behind the guilt and mostly grief that we feel about what happened on the Hill and to Mr. Lee and why we put it away for so long. Um, I was reminded recently of what Eric N., who was a classmate of mine and for a short while a co-artistic director of Thieves Theater, he once said that you have to weigh the power of creating art about the disease against creating a vaccine. In other words, against curing the disease. Yeah, in other words, don't get so high and mighty and self-righteous about whatever action you're doing in art. And right, but you know, ultimately we are artists and uh, as theater people we believe in the power of stories and what they can teach us and how they can help us live and an examined life. So we go forth with humility now and telling the story of not just the hill, but also what led up to it to give it some context. Right. But it's not going to read like hum humility because it's almost impossible in the telling of it not to get all caught up in the excitement and sense of purpose that you had at the time. You know, the sense of living large. Um, and the sense of righteousness that drove you to do it. Well, you got to believe in what you're doing, right. right? 
So in this episode, we're going to tell you about um, our production or our project in Marat Saad, which was in uh, 1983 and 84 in Toronto. Um, it, it set the stage, so to speak, for all our paratheatrical work that we did on the Hill, um, where productions put fiction, reality, or life, you know, rumor, legend, all in one pot so that um, you really couldn't separate one from the other, which is why we'll also talk about here about Buffalo Bill's Wild West. Yes, big inspiration. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, Wild West, not Wild West show, <laughs> maybe the ultimate paratheatrical um, work that, you know, in America that, you know, it had a, a real influence or a, a rendering of something to us. You know? Yeah, and in some ways it is a quintessentially American story, right? You know? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. the one that's... Yeah. Um, Right. So anyway, we began the Marat Sad in Toronto in the summer of 83, just before my last year in grad school. And we called it the Marat Sad uh, because it was an adaptation of Peter Weiss's play. Uh, it was Thieves Theater's third, no, yeah, third production in Toronto, the first two being Cocteau's The Human Voice and Tom Ian's The White Whore and The Bit Player. Those were the two smaller plays that we did that we, we were kind of testing the Toronto waters with and getting to know the, the theater scene there. And um, and then, yeah, the third play was The Maratsad. The full title of Weiss's play is... Nick, take it away. Yeah, it's 17 <laughs> words, right? Yeah. The persecution and assassination of John Paul Marat, as performed by the inmates at the asylum at Charlton, under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> wow. Very good. I think, I think you nailed it. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, okay, it was originally written in German, and it... <sighs> hard to encapsulate, but I think the best encapsulation... I feel in, in, you know, in, in, in 10 words or less or whatever, is that uh, it depicts the class struggle um, and human suffering and basically asks whether true revolution comes from changing society or from changing yourself. Well, yeah, I that's, guess that's yeah, kind of the theme of it. But I mean, it also, what is society's role and responsibility to uh, the disenfranchised, especially here, the... the the mentally ill, right, in right. the play, or today maybe. Of course, the theme is relevant later to the Hill when we started working with um, the residents Right, and there. it was relevant from our first play, Death Watch, Illinois State Penitentiary, or right? Inmates, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so as the, the full title suggests, uh, the play takes place in an insane asylum. Uh, it's a fairly complicated construction because it's a play within a play. So Peter Weiss's overarching play takes place in 1808. The play within the play takes place 15 years earlier in 1793 during the French Revolution. It's performed... The play within the play is performed uh, by uh, the inmates of the asylum, and it's written and directed by the Marquis de Sade, who is also an inmate. And it culminates in the assassination of Jean-Paul Marat. Uh, the play within the play gets super chaotic and sometimes 
the nurses and the supervisors have to step in and restore order, and the director of the asylum supervises the director of the play, who is the Marquis de Sade, uh, you know, of the play within the play, and it's chaos. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, our production was just as layered as all that, but it, it had, uh, I think, more was more chaotic because it it was real. I mean, you know, not just more real, it was real. In other words, there was no pretense. It was basically a, a backstage brawl of uh, the, the various factions in the ensemble, which are the punks, the actors, and the mental patients, and bringing them all, that backstage brawl on stage. And having it having that tension on stage right so it it, it, it the reality mirrored the play's reality and uh, it, 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 like you said it becomes even more layered that way right so the original play uh usually runs around three hours or so our adaptation the maratzad was about an hour long and um i translated it and adapted it well we adapted it together from from the german um we started to workshop the Maratzad with an activist anti-psychiatry anti group of mental patients in Toronto called On Our Own. Uh, On Our Own questioned the philosophical and ethical underpinnings of psychiatry. Uh, the group was founded in 1977 and was the first enduring group by and for psychiatric survivors in Toronto. Um, so after that workshop that summer in 83, I went back to school and Nick stayed in Toronto and completed the production. Yeah, right? and it, yeah, and it turned out some of the, some of the members of On Our Own uh, were also members of the uh, punk scene that was going on inside uh, Toronto. Right, and punk was just then coming into full bloom in Toronto, after London, after New York. Yeah, and we started uh, basically editing the script around the lyric sections of the play with, uh, you know, Zero, The Wild, Wild Things, and Mike Nightmare, everybody uh, writing original m music for it. Yeah, and don't forget Bunch of Fucking Goofs, maybe my f favorite band name ever. Yeah, well, right. But by the time we brought, you know, the actual actors formally into the piece, the reality was that the rehearsal space had become, you know, the performance space. For the uh, wild things, the barf puppies, and barf, barf puppies, right? I've and you know, bunch <laughs> of fucking goofs. Another. Great I mean, <laughs> you know, and and the punk singer Zero, she was part of everything too. I and I wouldn't say we worked with these bands as much as we hung out with them. You know, um, we'd go to their shows, and when we got there, we would disrupt them like punks do. You know, it was part of the a kind of performance. You know, it was performance art, punk. The punk music scene was performance art. So um, we, we were trying to become our own punk-like entity. We had watched uh, Mad Max, and the idea was to become like that gang in Mad Max. And, uh, you know, we tried to imitate the gang that was there and try to become that gang. And everybody brought in their own costume to try to look like that gang. Oh, yeah. And we started wearing it, and you know. It had but a lot we, of flavor of Mad Max. For right, sure. and we started wearing it in, as a performance thing both during rehearsal, outside rehearsal, inside the punk, uh, inside the after-hours bar that we started later. But anyway, at first we hung at the Cameron House. Which still exists, by the way, yeah. But then we started the after-hours bar, our own, you know? Right. Uh, so, and, and that after-hours bar was started 
in conjunction with the Toronto Film Festival, which happens every year in September, and it's a it's a huge deal. People take off work and um, you know to go see the films. The problem is, was I don't know if that's still the case today, but back then uh, the bars closed at one o'clock, and you can't expect people to go home after a film festival and watching a film. You know, you uh, you needed a place to hang out to meet the celebrities, and, and you know it wasn't. Uh it was basically a rent party. The liquor sales that we were were producing the Murat Saad, keeping us alive, keeping us be able to have the rehearsal space. The, the after all, they were all the same thing. And this Murat Saad started to get a name in underground Toronto. Right, and, and it was actually not really underground because the authorities turned a blind eye because they realized you can't <laughs> expect people to go home at one uh you used to go to Buffalo, I just remembered, right, to buy the liquor, too, because that was kind of fun, oh, yeah. just to give a little taste of the history back then. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was very easy to cross the border, yeah. and, and all you needed was a driver's license to get there and back, you know, you, you no, no pa- visa passport, or passport uh, like or anything. Like you do today. Yeah. yeah, so they didn't really scrutinize you. They asked you if you were carrying contraband, and you said no, you know. And, and they waved you through. Right. <laughs> I don't know what you do if they stopped you and caught you, <laughs> but I don't think much. Right. right, and liquor was so much more expensive in Canada. So you always did your liquor runs for the after-hour bar in Buffalo, right, right. In, in the U.S. Right. Let's see. So, okay, so you had your liquor, and you had your two-story loft space. Um, go ahead. That you did the after-hour bar in and right, 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 right. And the authorities didn't really bother you. All they did was find the bartenders if they ever did anything, right? But they, the problem was they also confiscated the, uh, you know, the money and the liquor. So you tried to keep the liquor and the money, all the money you were making that night, on another floor or out of sight or somewhere where they couldn't find it, right? <laughs> so we we hid. The, it was funny because we hid the money in a false floor on the second floor but the false floor had no back on it no back door on it when we were sticking it under and so long after we closed the after hours bar we were reaching under there with rakes and stuff <laughs> trying to find $20 bills or whatever and we'd find them every once in a while yeah yeah <laughs> you, you found the $20 bills basically when Calman needed a new bottle right, of Ronnie right, Martin right right, right. right. <laughs> Calman was uh, one of the main conspirators and the producer of the uh, show yeah and um, and he was the one who rented that two-story loft right. space and uh, you know he had various connections uh, some theater and some I mean a lot of theater but you sure. know some more shady kind of ones okay so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about him a little bit later because I I, yeah. I, I want to you know he was pr- very prominent in Ratan but so one of the m- mental patients uh, from the group On Our Own that was part of this production, his name was Tootsie, named after the film at the time. Uh, he was, what, six foot five, 300 plus pounds, uh, mm-hmm. about 40 years old, I would say, curly, black, dyed, black hair. Uh, he was the gentlest of giants and all Tootsie wanted out of life and all he ever talked about for the most part was uh, he wanted a sex change. Right. You know? And then every evening after <laughs> rehearsals or, or performances later, he'd, he'd walk, I don't know, maybe it was a mile and a half. I never knew where the halfway house was that he was walking Not back exactly, to. Not yeah. exactly, But he'd walk the, the mile and a half down Queen or uh, Queen Street or King Street and... Uh, 
On the way there, he would take out a crayon and he would mark in all the wheat-pasted posters, the Maratsads are coming. So it, it eventually appeared on every poster. On everybody else's wheat-pasted yeah. poster, yeah, yeah, other all, events. Right. right. <laughs> And he also carried these two large suitcases in which he carried, uh, he had all kinds of stuff in there, but the, the, the things that were important for the show were all the musical, toy musical instruments he had, like a saxophone and various other kind of plastic instruments that he, he'd pull out all the time and start playing with the wild things. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, Mike Nightmare probably was, he wasn't happy with it, but you know, it was, it was punk, it was punk music. Sure. Tootsie added another element to the thing. And you know, it, except for like three performances at the theater center, uh, three consecutive nights at the theater center, we never really um, did the Marat Saad play, except in piecemeal rehearsals and right, which went on for months. By yeah, the way, right. uh, it started with a Toronto Film Festival, but the rehearsal process was as added. did the after hours. As bar. did the after hours. Yeah, bar. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the whole thing was about so nine, nine, nine months. I want well, to say. that includes the time we we started it. Right, we were there. We, the, yeah, the yeah. workshops. So another six months or whatever there. Yeah. So, so in total. I would say maybe 500 people actually saw the three shows. Well, that's only if the Toronto Theatre Centre... It was full each night. They had full audiences, but I, I don't think there were probably even quite 500 people. Right, but scene. the actual show only ran three nights, the actual play, right? right. And um, But you would have thought that with the after-the-fact notoriety the Murad Saad got through, like, hearsay and newspaper articles and radio right. talk shows and, and letters to the editor, uh, you would have thought the whole city saw it. Well, that's because the Murad Saad after-hour site, you know, with the rehearsal performance thing, was conflated with the, the actual Murad Saad play, which we barely performed. So, uh, you know, the hearsay and rumor made one as one and one as the other, you know, they conflated the two. Yeah, and it was controversial, you know. I mean, some people said it's the best theater I've ever seen in my life, and other people said Nick Fricar well, should be ostracized. Yeah, it was different. <laughs> I mean, it was different from the start, yeah. the way we were approaching, you know, it wasn't quite theater. It wasn't quite performance art. It was, it was very punk. Yeah. So uh, in that aesthetic, you know, that we first formulated with Death Watch, where we were trying to bring the reality and the fiction together, um, it was now being cemented sort of with this production of the Murat Saad. A friend of ours was teaching uh, at NYU at the time, and he asked me to come do a lecture on it. And um, in the lecture, what I tried to do, well, I told the story of the Wild Bill, Wild West, and, tr and conflated it with how we were Buffalo doing Bill. Buffalo Bill. Right. <laughs> Not to be confused with Wild Bill Hickok. Right, exactly. <laughs> Another legend, right. Uh, how the Murat Saad was... Uh, how we use a similar approach to creating a Marat Saad. Yes. Right. You researched Buffalo Bill a lot. In fact, you had got a great, a great book on it, right? You researched that yeah. history extensively, um, and that's what led you to the idea of 
trying to get uh, these NYU students to get better insight into the Marat Saad by giving the example of Buffalo Bill, because it's also a story that very few people know. You know, Buffalo Bill has an incredible, incredible history, uh, including, you know, he wrote The Pony Express and, Baba, you know, on and on and on. But the thing that's relevant here is the uh, separating fact from fiction, which is very difficult to do with Buffalo Bill. Um, he had a, a dime novel, dime novels written about him by Ned Buntline, who he, who himself was this crazy character. Um, and Ned Buntline was actually a pseudonym, much like Buffalo Bill. Ned Buntline's real name was um, Edward Zane Carroll Judson Sr. And Go go look him up. I, you know, he had like uh, affairs with a, uh, a, a a teenage wife of somebody, and that that husband went after him and shot him, and then he was uh, Buntline was going to be arrested and hang and last second rescue oh, yeah, the, from the, the Astor, gallows. Yeah, and the Astor Place and riot. And the Astor Place riot. Uh, yeah, nineteen what eighteen forty nine. Eighteen forty nine. He was arrested as an instigator. Yes, he was, in, and for those. Those uh, of you who aren't theater people, the Astor Place riot took place in New York. It was a, a huge deal. It was an actual riot that took place because of two opposing productions of Macbeth. Uh, You know, if you can imagine that an actual riot could take place um, over theater production, but we won't get into that. Uh, But yes, Ned Buntline. He um, also created the Buntline special, which is that long gun that Wyatt Earp and others used, you know? Right, the long-barreled handgun, right? right? And he claims he gave Buffalo Bill that moniker. William F. Cody. Uh, Buntline claims he named him Buffalo Bill, right? Um, Again, anonymous, legend, who knows what's true, right? So if you look at any of the historical posters for the traveling show that Colonel William F. Cody created, you see that the building is Buffalo Bill's Wild West, not Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Uh, Cody's contention was that he toured not a show, but the actual West itself, complete with, you know, quote, real cowboys and Indians. Yeah. And, and, and they were. <laughs> and the representation and the difference or the, the line between representation and reality or lived experience was never clearly drawn inside this Buffalo Bill Wild West. Uh, the ambiguity gave this touring Wild West its power, its reality. Um, uh, Performance and lived experience was never clearly drawn. You know, it was intertwined with one another. Right. The Buffalo Bill story gained credence from the fact that it actually had been lived and in part at least, a claim that was not even, not just made by Cody, but also by the Native Americans who toured with the Wild West with them, including Sitting Bull. Including Sitting Bull, right. And so, uh, all right, so many of the Native Americans who attacked the whites in the Wild West later left the reservation and led by Sitting Bull, uh, fought the whites in northern U.S. and in Canada, and Sitting Bull figured prominently 
uh, into the ghost dance phenomenon, which is what led up to the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890, which is, of course, what our teepee was a memorial to. So, so here we were looking at the ghost dance phenomenon, I mean, and researching it eight years before we even went up to the hill and put up the teepee. Um, you know, the, the story that I found so interesting there was that um, here it was the Native Americans were first fighting against the whites that were coming in, but then they went into the show, the Wild West. Buffalo Bill's Wild West. And, and yeah. then they came out of that show and then went back to fight, fighting the whites again. I know. It's back and forth. So um, the thing, the story I found most interesting was when Sitting Bull came out of the Wild West show, Buffalo Bill had given him a horse. And the horse was from the show, was a trick horse. And the trick horse, when a shot was fired, was trained to sit back on its haunches and lift its front hooves up in the air and swing them. And what happened was they went to arrest Sitting Bull at the Pine Ridge Reservation. It was just about three months before uh, the Wounded Knee Massacre. They went to arrest Sitting Bull, and there was a scuffle, and he got shot. The and, gun went off. And killed. And killed. You know, they hauled him off, but the horse sat up on its haunches and did that trick where it was waving its front hooves. And, of course, all, the, all the, those that were participating in the ghost dance thought the horse was doing the ghost dance. Right, him. yeah. And so, so some of the Sioux who attacked Custer at Little Bighorn later joined Buffalo Bill, his Buffalo Bill's theater troupe, and attacked him nightly in the Wild West show uh, tour in England. Um, you know, Buffalo Bill took this entire horses and this huge show on to a ship and crossed England and you know crossed over to England and toured it I mean that I, I always found that kind of mind-boggling I mean you know the most dramatic incident though mm -hmm. has to be uh, of this interchange between theater and life is the yellow hand incident right or it became known as that it right? became known yeah and, uh, so in June of 1876, Buffalo Bill left the stage in Wilmington, Delaware, where he was the star in a touring melodrama, touring melodrama called, sorry, I can't talk today, um, The Prairie Scout. Written by Ned Buttline. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. That's hilarious. It's all coming together. So he left that show to take an actual commission as an actual scout, again, back and forth, right, with the 5th Cavalry. He was in the field, not with Custer, but at the time, he was in the field at the time of Custer's last stand. And in a battle that July, Buffalo Bill killed and scalped the warrior Hiaway, which was translated at the time as Yellowhand. So thus the yellow hand incident. Yeah, the engagement was, their fight was staged, of course. And um, meaning that instead of the, the whites sending in their, their army and the, uh, and the natives sending in their tribe to fight, they decided to fight between two people. So they sent yellow hand, the Cheyenne sent yellow, yellow hand, and uh, the 5th Cavalry sent... Um, Buffalo Bill. Yeah. So Yellowhand was, of course, putting on his war makeup, 
before the fight. Buffalo Bill was putting on his stage makeup as well as putting on his stage costume, his showman's costume that he wore in the theater. And uh, Buffalo Bill killed Yellowhand. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sorry. I just keep thinking it would be so great if all wars were fought that way, right? Send one of your bravest warriors, let them fight it out, and the end. All right, whatever. Um, so unbelievably, the next year, a melodrama called The Red Right Hand, or The First Scalp for Custer, not written by Ned Buntline, I presume? No, probably not. No. <laughs> Starring Buffalo know. Bill toured the country. Uh, so each night, Buffalo Bill killed Yellowhand in the same theatrical costume and makeup that he wore in the actual battle where he killed the actual Yellowhand. So repeatedly in theaters across the country, he took the first scalp, <laughs> quote unquote, um, the actual scalp of Yellowhand was on tour with the play and on display well, in the lobby, so they say, right? Yeah, I mean, is that fact or fiction? I mean, did the actual scalp exist? If, if so, wouldn't it still exist? I mean, did <laughs> Buffalo Bill actually scalp Yellowhand? Yeah, um, let's start with this fact versus fiction. Let's start with it with the fact <laughs> that Hiaway actually translates into yellow hair. So the yellow hand incident is actually the yellow hair incident, but if you look at books, it's really, it's not known as that in history. So uh, is there an actual scalp? Um, and if so, did it have yellow hair? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So in this lecture at NYU to the students, I was, I was linking Buffalo Bill's Wild West with our Marat Saad production and showing how fiction and lived experience were intertwined with each other. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I want to get back to Kalman for a second. Okay? Um, Paul Kalman was a partner in Thieves Theater with us in producing the Marat Saad. And he's also the one who originally rented the space the, you know, for the After Hours Bar and had all the connection, as we mentioned. And so as an actor, Paul had achieved some success, some celebrity. As a leading man in a few films, most prominently, he played the lead, TJ, a couple years earlier in 1981, in the cult classic My Bloody Valentine which was a huge deal among cult horror fans. It is a huge deal to this very day. Uh, Paul remained a dear friend until he died a little over a year ago, and he had stopped going to conventions, my bloody Valentine conventions, because of his illness, but he was still signing autographs and sending his head signed headshot uh, out via, you know, by, by mail, so well, he had a career to the end of his life based on My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, but we, when we started producing Murad Saad, the reality wasn't just the production of Murad Saad because <laughs> it was the building which had antique furniture, which Paul and I would haul down to the harbor on weekends to sell at the antique market. It had a fashion store that uh, the punks brought in their homemade uh, studded clothing and stuff to sell. And it, it, was, um, it was all one thing. We lived there, of course, too, Paul and I. Mm -hmm. So it was all, the building was the Marat Saad with all these different businesses, quote unquote, attached to it. 
Paul's history of enacting, though, was mostly in the theater, alternative theater. That's where we found a lot of the actors that came in. Uh, he worked for Theater Pass Mirai. Great name. Right. Uh, Perfect the, name for us. Yeah. The, <laughs> theater Beyond Walls, right? You we, know, Kelman was a mover and a shaker. And he, when he attached his ambition to something, you know, everyone knew that the theater piece was going to be a success. Or it, not a success, maybe, but it was going to be something. Yeah, a, just a as surely name. as everybody knew that the After Hours bar and the fashion clothing store and the antique furniture business would all go bust sooner rather than later. <laughs> or get busted, or more get, likely. Or get busted, yeah, right. right. <laughs> so the punks in the mall, you know, I said they brought in their studded clothes, right? And um, Kelman sh sold everything on commission. So... Um, if somebody sold um, a pair of pants, he'd get half or whatever. And same thing with the furniture that was brought in. And uh, the store never really paid the rent. You know, none of it, none of the enterprise really did. Although the, the furniture coming in helped a lot, but we, we never had money for to give back the commission on the furniture that we sold. So it was always uh, trying to, Give to Peter from Paul, like, you know, that saying, yeah. you pay Peter, with blah, blah, blah. And so uh, they come in trying to get their money, and we'd say, you know, you can have anything in the store, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so it sort of worked. People sort of understood that we didn't have the money, and we weren't trying to... Bilk you know, them. No, bilk no, them. No, no, we no. just didn't have the money. In the so, end, everybody got what they needed out of yeah. it, you know. And then in the end, it was from, you know, borrow Peter to pay Paul until... There, there, was no Paul. <laughs> there was just Paul. There was just Paul Kelman. Kelman right. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing crazy or dishonest about doing business like this. I mean, it was just a, a different, more fitting, more, I don't know, venture for the Marat side. Yes, right? and a more fitting venture for Thieves Theater, right? I mean, uh, which wants to put sticks in anthills and disrupt the status quo of how you do things in the world and not play by capitalism's rules. Well, you yeah. know, I mean, a, a game that you can't win when you do things on the level that we're trying to do them. Well, I mean, yeah, you know? at that level, I think sometimes good theater has to be bad business. I mean, uh, more precisely, the big site specific arena of capitalistic system right? Doesn't really have or doesn't give any value to something like the Murad side. Or, or, so you have to reinvent the values and the means of barter and with, you know, in a kind of temporary autonomy. Yes, zone. yes. It's not going to last forever. No. And, and here's the important part to me, right? Is that it also dismisses the voices and the knowledge of individuals like Tootsie, like Mike Nightmare, or the inmates of Illinois State Penitentiary, mm. or the people in the shantytown, for example. Those people cannot find a voice and make themselves heard in the status quo system, right? Yeah. So Mike, for example, right, uh, he told this story once of how he escaped a mental hospital Right. We, we had found him through On Our Own, you know, the, the anti-psychiatry group. Right? Exactly. He was part of On Our Own. And 
he found himself still fantasizing at the time about stalking and kidnapping and torturing the psych doctor that he had who ordered his electroshock treatment. He fantasized putting jumper cables from his car battery to his temples. And, yeah, right. Right? Mike, Mike, Mike was something. He had this deep, crackling kind of voice when he sang and when he talked. I mean, everybody said that, you know, when Mike Nightwear walked into a bar, and he had a face, too, that everybody said, that's a face you want to punch, you know? <laughs> he was that kind of guy, right? And, I mean, <laughs> the good doctor and Mike were probably very lucky that Mike Nightmare found the wild things and uh, a temporary autonomous zone, like the Murad Saad, to sublimate and stage the rage that was inside him. Yeah. Because instead of, you know, perpetrating it out on reality. The, rea the rage, exactly. Yeah. And that is the function of theater, right? Of art. The function is catharsis, sublimation. And as you said, Nick, in, your, in the last episode, uh, it's like that boxing ring where the street fight and the war mm. are kept at bay, contained, Right? All right, so Peter Brook gave the definitive production of Murat Saad. Peter Weiss's play was written for an audience similar to the audience of the play within the play, meaning the genteel 1808 Paris intelligentsia and upper crust that watched the inmates of the title perform. So site-specific in the case of Peter Weiss's play was the Royal Shakespeare Company, one of the grandest, most highly subsidized theater, Western culture, or Kultur, as we Germans say, has to offer. Right. And we, we found a counter-culture equivalent to that site-specific venue. And that was the Marazza in Toronto. I mean, the, the punks were represented part of that. And the actors in an alternative theater scene, another part, and Tootsie and on our own uh, mental patients represented still another. So it was, you know, if I call to mind a defining image of what <laughs> I get from Marat Saad, it really is, I think it's Tootsie saying goodnight to me after the opening night performance. And, uh, you know, and he's picking up his two suitcases and he's walking to his halfway house down King Street there. And um, to me, he looks larger than life, you know, a larger than life hero. And I, I just think of him walking alone with those two things, yeah. facing his life. But then I realized that on the way there back, he's probably still going to write on the, the last... The Marat Sads are coming. <laughs> yeah, on one of the last posters on there. And then, you know, then I start to laugh and I realize that he's not really heroic or larger in life he's just crazy but I mean he's crazy the, the way the rest of us were in that show yeah crazy and, and like crazy and larger than life than the rest of us were all of us were in that show yeah Tootsie you know I I regret not spending more time I would go there on weekends or whatever when I had long weekends and so I wasn't really part of uh, Maratha, but one thing I'm grateful for is to have gotten to know mm. Tootsie. He uh, will forever be <laughs> yeah, and more than an anything, inspiration, right? And more than anything, I think he's the legend yes. of the Maratha. 
If the Marat Saad is the legend, it's Tootsie. Exactly. Yeah. So that is the legend of the Marat Saad. In the next episode, we're going to take you back to New York and ABC No Rio, and we'll be talking about the final site-specific, zeitgeist-specific production that led up to our work on the Hill. You want to talk about No Rio, how you found the... Uh, oh, yes. Okay. How you found out the name? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I this mean, you found it out for both of us. For both I of didn't. us, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, we'd already mentioned ABC No Rio, and, uh, you know, I, I just don't want this to get lost because I'm very proud of it. It was like this epiphany that I had. Uh, nobody ever really talked about how ABC or No Rio got its name. They didn't tell you. But if, when you discovered it, you felt amazing. So I was standing on the stoop outside uh, of the building, looking across the street, probably smoking a cigarette, you know, on break from some rehearsal. And there it was. There it was right in front of me. Across the street was an old fading sign in Spanish for a lawyer's office, abogado notario. A, B, the O was half missing, so that's the C. Gado was gone. No, the rest was gone. Tari was gone. Rio, no, ta, Rio. So A, B, C, no, Rio was all that was left from abogado notario. Right. <laughs> and that's where we did uh, my play early in, uh, in 82 or 83, whatever it was. And then we came back with the trash city in... Death. Right. So uh, Trash the City and Death, which we'll talk about next time, was a highly, highly controversial play um, written by Reiner Werner Fassbinder, uh, who is best known, of course, as a filmmaker. Um, there were four failed attempts to mount the play in Germany, including by Fassbinder himself. Volumes, volumes of critical analysis were written about the play, the consensus being that it was unproducible. Yeah, in 1987, Thieves Theater staged the world pre premiere, sparking a kind of international attention and debate over it, yeah. Right, so that's next time. Thank you for listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell so that you know when our next episode is out. And check out our website at thievestheater.org, where you can also buy Gabrielle's book, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I -I on the Hill. 